You're listening to Time in the Word. In today's study, part 2 of Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Dr. Gonzalez discusses the two positive results of Paul's visit to Jerusalem. First, Titus, Paul's Gentile convert, was accepted. Titus did not have to be circumcised to be saved. Second, Paul's commission was acknowledged. The apostles acknowledged Paul's commission to preach the gospel, and they endorsed Paul's mission to the Gentiles. Dr. Gonzalez will also point out that the way the first apostles treated one another is really a model for ministry. Paul's successful defense of the gospel truth that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and Paul's fight for spiritual freedom from Jewish regulations to preserve the justifying grace of God in the gospel. As God ministers to you through this series of studies, and as you experience God's grace in your own life, Share these podcasts with others so that they too may be blessed by God's word and his amazing grace. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez continues his expository study of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. We know from the book of Acts and we know from reading the book of Galatians that Paul's trip to Jerusalem had two positive results. And think of them again in the context in which Paul is writing this epistle. First, his convert, namely Titus, was accepted. Very important in light of the discussion that he's, he's, or the reason for his writing here. And second, his commission was acknowledged. So let's look at the first. Paul's convert was accepted. In verse 1, Paul mentions that he had brought Titus with him. Now, Titus was a Gentile convert who Paul considered a co-worker or co-laborer in the ministry. And we know that eventually he became a prominent leader in the early church, serving as a pastor or an elder in the church in Crete. Now think about his taking Titus to Jerusalem. It was really a daring move. And why do I say that? Because Titus was a Greek, a Gentile rather than a Jew. Titus was uncircumcised. If anything, was bound to enrage the Judaizers. It was going to be Paul bringing an uncircumcised Gentile into their holy city. So it was a bold move on his part. I mean, circumcision meant everything to the Jews. It was the sacred mark of Jewish identity, a symbol of salvation. I mean, you recall that since the days of Abraham, circumcision had been the visible sign of belonging to God's people. And according to the command of God in Genesis chapter 17, circumcision was, was determined, or circumcision determined whether someone was inside or outside the covenant. You recall that if a Gentile was to convert to Judaism, that Gentile would have to undergo circumcision. This was what the law required. Then Paul comes along with this law-free gospel, with this gospel of grace, preaching the good news of the cross and the empty tomb. Here comes Paul saying that Christ has already met the requirements of the law, so that circumcision, listen, doesn't even matter. Paul would argue that all it took to belong to God was faith in Jesus Christ. So Titus, taking Titus to Jerusalem, served as a perfect test case 
for the freedom of Paul's gospel. Here was a man, an uncircumcised Greek, who had received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. The question now became, and this is in great part the reason for the Jerusalem Council, and this is certainly in great part the reason for Paul's epistle to the Galatian churches. Here's the question. Having received the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior by faith, having received the gospel of grace, did he or did he not, and I'm referring to Titus, also have to meet the requirements of the law, epitomized by circumcision? That was the question. What was the answer? Well, the apostles, the answer that the apostles gave was that Titus did not and therefore, no believing Gentile needed to be circumcised to be saved. This was a tremendous blow to the Judaizers, who all along, in part at least, had been claiming that Jerusalem was on their side. Clearly not based on the decision that they had made here. Look at verse 3. Look how Paul put it. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. When you think of, and, and we'll kind of address this as we, as we move along, but, you know, and we kind of mentioned this a little bit in, in, in the first meeting, what, what is the big deal? What is the issue here? Does such a to-do have to be made over these things? Can we not get along? Is there nothing we can do to set these differences aside so that we can somehow move forward? No, because for Paul, the issue was that the good news is not salvation by faith in Christ plus circumcision. What Paul is arguing here and what the apostles are saying by their decision is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. I mean... Circumcision is no longer a big deal today in the church, right? We, that's not an issue of contention we, we, we deal with today. But the deeper issue is still relevant. And why do I say that? Paul regarded circumcision as a synecdoche for the entire law. For Paul, circumcision represented law-keeping in general. It wasn't just the issue of circumcision. It was everything it represented. So when Paul fights for the gospel and when the apostles make this decision, what they're clearly saying is that the gospel of grace, salvation of any and all people, is by grace, through faith, in Christ, plus nothing. I mean, you fill in the plus nothing. What are the plus nothings that are being filled by groups today? I mean, you name it. Within Protestantism, within evangelicalism, the good news is salvation by faith in Christ alone. Thus, the apostle was fighting for something, listen, fundamental to Christianity at all times and at all places. What does it take, if we paraphrase sort of the question I asked before, and here would be sort of what Paul is asking here, what does it take to become a first-class member of God's family? Is it simply a matter of faith in Christ, or is there something else too? And it has to be one or the other. 
They're mutually exclusive. You cannot have, you know, the law of, lo- the, the law of non-contradiction would forbid those two to be mutually inclusive. They, it's one or the other. And shouldn't we get that right? Because after all, what's at stake? My soul, forever. How certain are you of your salvation? Are you certain that the gospel that you have received, the gospel that you responded to, is the gospel that you should have responded to? See the the issue here? The Galatians are now questioning all sorts of things. Because, again, the gospel they're now hearing from the Judaizers can't be reconciled with the gospel they had originally responded to. Does it matter? Wouldn't it define the gospel we proclaim week week in and week out? I mean, when you have conversations with non-believers in your neighborhood or in your workplace or wherever, what gospel are you presenting? What gospel should you be presenting? Should it be a gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing? Or should it be grace, faith, Christ, plus something? That's what's at stake here. That's why he's so adamant about this. That's why a church council about this. The answer is that there is no second-class Christian. How could there be? Every Christian is saved the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Therefore, now listen, there can be no discrimination in the church. The church cannot exclude people from salvation on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, on the basis of class or age or anything else. Listen, the church cannot even discriminate on the basis of relative righteousness. Yes, Christians have different gifts. Yes, we have different backgrounds. Yes, we have different cultures. We have different ministries and callings. In all this, so that there's order in the church, we have different trials and different temptations. Listen, but there is no difference in our standing before God. And there is no difference. If there is no difference in our standing before God, then therefore there should be absolutely no difference in our standing one to the other. And Titus was a perfect example. Think about it. Here comes Paul with Titus to Jerusalem to meet with uh, those who were uh, uh, apparent leaders in in the church there. I mean, he could hardly have been more different from the apostles than he was. Here he is, an uncircumcised Gentile standing before these apostles. But here's the beauty, not only in in this story, but in, in, in the present time. He also stood before them as a man saved by the cross and by the empty tomb. God, listen, and this is what the apostles clearly recognized. God had accepted him solely on the basis of what Jesus had done for him. And on that basis, the apostles, even in Jerusalem, accepted Titus as a first-rate brother in Christ. And you know what the apostles were saying, essentially? You know what the apostles proved by doing this? They were proving that justification comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. 
The gospel has always been what the gospel is. What the council did was it affirmed what the gospel had always been, the gospel of grace. They didn't define, they simply acknowledged what the gospel had always been, but what the Judaizers were the perverting the gospel to become. All right, so one result of Paul's trip, one positive result of Paul's trip is that his convert, his, his uh, uh, uncircumcised Ju- uh, uh, Gentile convert was accepted. Titus was not required uh, to be circumcised. The second important result of this visit was that Paul's commission had been acknowledged. Now, it's interesting. Uh, uh, we'll look at some of the words that Paul uses here. Notice Paul's attitude toward the other apostles. In verses 2 and verses 6, he describes them as men who seemed to be influential. Have you ever thought about the choice of words? Seemed to be influential. And, and in verse 9, he says those who seemed to be pillars. Why would Paul choose to say what he said the way he did. Doesn't it seem kind of odd? Were they not influential? Were they not pillars? Is that what he's saying? I mean, his comments seem to be a bit standoffish or even derogatory. But if you remember the context of this epistle, that goes away. Remember that his opponents were making a big deal about them as if the Jerusalem apostles were the only ones that counted. You, Paul, are not one of them. So he's, he's kind of he's bringing their argument and framing his words in such a way that would undermine the very argument that they're making. Paul responded by saying, look at verse 6, what they were makes no difference to me. Let's see if we can understand why and what he's saying here. What Paul is saying is that what God had done in his own life was different from what he had done in Peter's life. Paul knew that. He was not one of the original 12. He knew that. But what they were, namely companions of Christ during the earthly ministry, did not make them a higher authority, is sort of the point he's making. Paul had respect for the other apostles. There's no question about that. He knew that they were influential. He knew that they were pillars, but let's keep that within the proper context, is what he's saying. Because they are what they are doesn't mean I am not what I am. And their authority is no greater than mine because they were companions of Christ during his earthly ministry and I wasn't, is the point he's making here. Remember, they had been attacking his authority, so he's establishing his authority. He certainly had respect for the other apostles, but he was not intimidated by them. He didn't make a fuss over their credentials because he knew, as it says in verse 6, that God shows no partiality. Listen to what John Stott, how he explains this, and I quote, although he, Paul, accepts their office as apostles. There's no question he did. That's not what he's saying. He is not overawed by their person as it was being inflated by the Judaizers. That's all he's saying. Yes, they're apostles. Yes, they are indeed influential. And yes, they are indeed pillars, but so am I. The important thing is not what Paul thought about the other apostles. We can't miss the point here. But what they thought of him and the gospel that he had been proclaiming. That was the real issue, wasn't it? I mean, they were were going to validate his authority. They were going to recognize his apostleship. And they were going to agree with the gospel of grace or not. If it was a not, this epistle wouldn't exist, most likely. The point he's making is 
it doesn't matter ultimately what it is that I think of them, it's what they think of me, what they think of my ministry, and what they think of the gospel I've been preaching to the Gentiles. Notice in verse 6, Paul puts it plainly to them. He says, who seemed uh, influential, and here's two important words, added nothing to me. What does that mean? And why is that important? Listen, the other apostles did not have to give official approval to Paul. That wasn't even the reason why Paul went there. They simply acknowledged that he had already God's approval because he was an apostle in his own right. And nor did the apostles add anything to Paul's message. And remember, Paul's message is a law-free gospel, is a gospel of grace. It's not the gospel the Judaizers are preaching. Yet the apostles, the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, the influential men in the church, added nothing to the law-free gospel, to the gospel of grace. They did not try to amend They did not try to edit, change, or otherwise alter the gospel. They added nothing to it. They removed nothing from it. They changed nothing about it. They simply accepted it as it was. What would that mean for the Judaizers back in Galatia and in Antioch and other churches? What does it mean for us today? As we find ourselves in in postmodern Christian culture, where secularism is increasing exponentially, and many who call themselves, as they did, right, brothers, although he classifies as them as false, but they thought themselves to be brothers. We have many today who think themselves and call themselves to be brothers, yet have long ago compromised the message. The gospel being proclaimed, if we, if we even want to use the word gospel, is not the gospel that Paul is so clearly defending here. It's not a gospel of grace. It is a gospel, listen, it is a gospel that includes faith. It is a gospel that includes grace. It is a gospel that may even include Christ, but it never stops there. It's a gospel of all those things plus something. Whatever that is, it nullifies the true gospel of grace. It is now another gospel, which is, by his own words, no gospel at all. It cannot save. In fact, it will not save. It will ensure condemnation for him who embraces such gospel. That's why, I mean, think of it. You have, you have churches. I mean, to go, you know, turn on the TV when you go home. Watch the televised services. Stadiums full of people. A man standing in the front proclaiming something they are all embracing and it's not a gospel that saves. What's at stake? This is the perennial danger for the church. Christians are always trying to add something to the gospel. They elevate some aspect of Christianity to a place of supreme importance. Whatever that is. So that the good news becomes faith in Christ plus something. And, you know, usually what gets added in is not something that's bad in and of itself. It may even be good in and of itself. The problem is it's the status it's given now in relationship to the gospel. But for the gospel to be the gospel, it has to stand alone. The gospel is Christ, listen, plus nothing. The old hymn by Edward Mote claims that our 
Hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. True? True. But our hope is also built on nothing more than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's also true. Because the moment you add something to it, the lyrics of that song, based on the word of God, lose their true meaning. Back in uh, chapter 1, and this is kind of the difference you see in both chapters. Back in chapter 1, Paul told the Galatians to accept no alternatives, right? There is no other gospel. Accept no other gospel. There is no alternatives. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2, he tells them to accept no additives. So don't accept any other gospel, anyone that is completely contrary, clearly contrary to the gospel you first received. But also do not receive that gospel that has now something added to it. Reject any alternate and reject any additive. The gospel, the apostles acknowledged Paul's commission to preach the gospel. Notice verse 9, chapter 2. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, listen, perceived. They didn't have to be told. They perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to me, to Barnabas and me. The right hand of fellowship was a symbolic gesture of partnership in the gospel. The other apostles essentially endorsed his mission to the Gentiles. But they perceived that. The way the first apostles treated one another is really a model of, for ministry. There's an older commentary on, on the book of Galatians that says this, and I quote, The true way to avoid strife is just that which is proposed. Let there be on both sides perfect frankness. Let there be a willingness to explain and state things just as they are. And let there be a disposition to rejoice in the talents and zeal and success of others, though it should far outstrip our own. And contention in the church would cease, and every devoted and successful minister of the gospel would receive the right hand of fellowship from all who love the cause of true religion. The apostles did everything they could to avoid strife. When Paul met with the apostles, notice that he, uh, uh, he set before them his gospel for the Gentiles, verse 2. This is a term essentially for making a full disclosure. Paul did not hide anything. He told the others exactly what he was preaching so that there could be honest discussion on the issues. At the same time, we know that the apostles rejoiced in the talents and the success of others. They weren't interested in building two separate kingdoms or two little kingdoms of their own. The Jerusalem apostles did not envy Paul's global success as a missionary. Look at verses 7 and 8. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. When we think of that word perceived, what it sort of means is that the apostles knew the work of God when they saw it. They also understood that the gospel is a partnership. So, by the time Paul's visit to Jerusalem was over, he had successfully defended the gospel truth that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And again, we asked the question, what difference does it make? To be sure, it made a difference to Paul. He met with others, as it says in verse 2, to make sure, he wrote, I was not running or had run in vain. 
What does that mean? That's a curious statement too. How do we interpret that statement, certainly within the context of this epistle? Does it mean that Paul had doubts in his mind about the gospel he had been proclaiming? Does it mean that Paul was not sure that he had been proclaiming the right gospel? No, but it does go to tell us what's at stake here. And let me sort of unpack that for you. Paul had received the gospel he preached from Christ himself. We know that. He tells us that in this epistle. Here's Paul's fear. Here's what he means when he says that, that he was concerned that he had been running or had run in, in, in vain. Here's his concern. Paul, Paul's fear did not have to do with his own commission. He knew who he was. He knew he had been called. He knew he had been commissioned, sent. He knew the message he had been given to proclaim. It was not his concern about his own commission, but it was the church's commission that he was concerned about. And what do I mean by that? Listen, unless he and the other apostles were all preaching the same gospel, the church would never fulfill their mission to the world. In other words, if I'm proclaiming this gospel, which I know to be true, for I have received it from the Lord himself, and the apostles in Jerusalem are preaching some other gospel, how will the church ever fulfill its commission, its calling, its purpose in the earth? In particular, Paul was worried about the permanent division in the church between Jews and Gentiles. Listen to how F.F. F. Bruce describes his concern, and I quote, His commission was not derived from Jerusalem, but it could not be executed effectively except in fellowship with Jerusalem. A cleavage between the, his Gentile mission and the mother church would be disastrous, says F.F. F. Bruce. Christ would be divided. And all the energy which Paul had devoted and hoped to devote to evangelize the Gentile world would be frustrated. That was his concern. So to describe his fears, Paul used the illustration of a foot race, such as a relay race. He knew that he would complete his leg of the race. That was not his concern. But he needed to be sure that the other apostles would also carry the gospel baton. Otherwise, his efforts would be wasted and the church would never make the finish line. Imagine for a moment that Paul had not been successful after that visit to, the, to Jerusalem. Imagine for a moment that the apostles' decision had been different from what it actually was. What would the church look like today had they not acknowledged his commission and had they not affirmed his gospel? What would the church look like today? If the apostles, what would it look like today if the apostles had required Gentiles to become Jews in order to become Christians? It would simply mean that salvation, if we summarize it, would not be by grace alone, through Christ, uh, uh, faith alone, in Christ alone, period. It would involve something else, and that would be law-keeping. It would be adopting the law of Moses and living by everything that Judaism required of the Jew in addition to whatever the gospel brought. Thus his concern of these free men and women who had accepted the true gospel be going back into bondage by the grace of God. Paul and the apostles were of the same mind. They affirmed each other's commission and message. And now for millennia, we have been proclaiming the gospel of grace. And by God's grace, we've seen 
millions come to faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Had Paul failed to defend the gospel, and here's the an application. I said earlier this morning that it is not enough, though it is absolutely essential and critical, but it is not enough that we share. It is not enough that we preach the gospel. It is absolutely necessary that we also defend that gospel. What Paul was defending then is what we are all required to defend today. That very same gospel, the freedom that we have in Christ, must be defended by every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said this before, oftentimes when I talk to people at work about things of faith, when we talk about the Bible and God and Christ and the cross and the gospel, I spend more time evangelizing Christians than atheists. They've embraced a gospel that is no gospel at all, and they've learned that gospel in a church that from its pulpit teaches it. That church long ago gave up defending that the truth, and now many have embraced it. And I have to tell non-believers in my workplace that what you see them doing is not what Christianity is really all about. We are all the time in damage control because people think Christianity is what they see among these Christians who are simply living out their faith, right? That's what we're responsible for today. We are just as responsible for doing what Paul did then, now. Yes, we may have differences of opinion on certain things that we would deem non-essential, but on the essential doctrines of the faith, such as justification by faith alone, Listen, we're not Roman Catholics because we have a significant difference with many doctrines, one of them being what? How is one saved? We would argue that they have not added circumcision to their gospel, but they've added works. It's a plus. So it is our responsibility to be as and how do we defend that? Do we even know what the gospel is? Do we even know when we're having a conversation with somebody whether what they're telling us is error or not? Are we correcting because we actually know what the gospel is? And are we correcting because we are thoroughly acquainted with the word of God? Or, you know, or are we those who go out and say this is what the Bible teaches, not because you've done your due diligence, but because I stood up here and told you something and you took my word for it? Are you, listen... Will you, after you leave this place today, do your due diligence to see if you must defend the gospel from what I said? Should we not always be that discerning and that vigilant on something so essential? I mean, other things, eh, you know, this? So I'll close by saying that even though Galatians is partly about ethnocentrism, the deeper issue is the perpetual danger of adding our own requirements to the only thing that God requires for salvation, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Again, in quoting John Stott, he says, The Christian has been set free from the law in the sense that his acceptance before God depends entirely upon God's grace in the death of Jesus Christ received by faith. To introduce the works of the law, and I would add, to introduce anything and make our acceptance depend on our obedience to rules or that anything and regulations was to bring a free man into bondage again. The fight for freedom in Christ is not going to end, beloved, till he 
returns. For this very reason, the gospel still needs freedom fighters today. Are we that? One of the great freedom fighters in the history of the church was Martin Luther, and I'll close with this quote from Martin Luther. The issue before us is grave and vital. What was he fighting for? What was the Protestant Reformation all about? Was it not the very same thing Paul was fighting? Don't get me going. It involves the death of the Son of God, who by the will and command of the Father became flesh was crucified and died for the sins of the world. If faith yields on this point, the death of the Son of God will be in faith. Then it is only a fable that Christ is the Savior of the world. Then God is a liar, for he has not lived up to his promises. Therefore, our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy, for by it we are striving to preserve the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to keep the truth of the gospel. If we lose this, said Martin Luther, we lose God, Christ, all the promises, faith, righteousness, and eternal life. That is what's at stake.